Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green, and I'm your host. We're continuing in a series on the 13 attributes of divine mercy that are found in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, when Moses has gone and pleaded with the Lord not to abandon his people, not to annul the covenant, to go forward with them as they move towards the promised land. They've sinned grievously by making uh, a golden calf and offering worship and sacrifice to that calf. And so Moses has pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord has agreed to continue to go with the people and to strike the covenant again and, and tells Moses, go and make two new tablets. And I'll write on those tablets the words that were on the first tablets. And Moses has pleaded with the Lord that he would see his glory. And so the Lord shows him his glory there on the mountain. He descends in a cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So what we're focusing on is that that word in Hebrew, hesed, that's translated as steadfast love. We talked a good bit about that last time on considering the idea of that, that the world is created in Hesed. It was an act of Hesed, an act of steadfast love that caused God to even bring this world into being because he didn't have to do that. But he so loved that what he was going to do that he had to bring it about, no matter the fact that he knew how this would end and how quickly it would begin to move in an opposite and downhill direction. We also talked about the idea of there's two sort of not opposing forces, but two things that need to be there and need to work together in this world. And that's the concept of din, which is justice, and then hesed, which is steadfast love and mercy. It includes all of that. And so what I want to talk about a little bit today is, is the, the idea, again, that God created this world out of hesed, but din justice is always present and must be. And that's in this uh, revelation of himself that he gives to Moses here. Both those things are there. He keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving inequity and transgression and sin, but he by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the, of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So he keeps it for keeps steadfast love for thousands, but but he says third and four, three and four generations I will visit the iniquity on those. So, so God's hesed is, is uh, multiple times greater. It's thousands divided by four. So that's the, the difference between God's hesed and God's din in Jewish thought. And so what I want to talk about is, is that those things are both present also in Jesus. And I want to hold up for us always. So the world begins with an act of hesed, an act of steadfast love, because God says it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. And so there's this love that God has for his creation. He has proclaimed all these things as good. So our question always begins with, do we agree with God's judgment on all these things? Do we agree that all these things are good, even though they're in a fallen state because of sin? So it begins there. And then this, so this act of hesed love that God creates the world in spite of the fact that, that he has said you will surely die, when sin comes into the world, God's hesed love is he doesn't destroy Adam and Eve. He just brings something new into the world for them, the, the possibility of death. 
now is there, and so we all die because we all sin. The wages of sin, Paul says, is death. And so we live under that curse, as it were, and the curse until Jesus, until the resurrection, is death. And so we all grapple with that curse. We all have to deal with that curse. But Jesus has destroyed death by his own death and then by rising to life again the next day. So it's his life lived in perfect accordance with God's will, a sinless life. He then experiences death on the cross, but he experiences it because we cause that. We bring that on him. Humanity decided that, that he was not representative of Hesed. His people said, you're not representative of Hesed. You are a curse we must rid from our land. And so they find him guilty when God didn't find him guilty. And we know God didn't find him guilty because he was the first and only resurrected person. And then, so his death swallows up death. So we can ask with Paul, O oh death, where is your sting? And so in our tradition at the, the grave as a, as a priest, I was able to stand and say, all we go down to death, but even at the grave, we make our song, Alleluia, 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 because of Jesus, we can do that. So we know that he has overcome death, and that's gone. That's no longer something we need fear. While we may go down to the dust, we can always make our song, Alleluia, 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 a proclamation that death is not the final word. There is life after death because of Jesus. So that great act of hesed gives us life, whereas a great act of sin brings din, justice, into the world, which brings death. But it's because of sin. It's because of our sin. The world then, nothing we experience is as it should have been. But it will be we will see victory. Just the same as Job, when he's arguing that, that he's innocent, that he didn't deserve what's happened to him. He's arguing from that place of, no, this is not justice, this is not din. But what he hasn't ever seems to have fully seen is, no, that everything you have, everything you are, is an act of hesed. All the enjoyment you have in life, all the blessing you have in life, it's an act of God's love, not because you deserved it, but because God freely gave that. And that's the Satan's argument with God. Of course, he praises you and worships you because you give him everything. But if you take it away, then he'll curse you to your face. And Job never did. He just pleaded for justice because what had happened was not just. And what Job never seems to have realized prior to that was we live in an unjust world. We live not in a world of justice, as in there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between good things happening to you because you put good out into the world. We don't live in a world of karma. We don't live in a world that's ruled by that. We live in a world of hesed where, where we get far more than we deserve. Because if we plead for justice, then what we plead for is, is for God to judge us according to His righteous standard, not by our standard. Because that's the thing we all you know, kind of fall into this idea of God's going to judge me according to what I've done. Well, if God judged you according to what 
you've done based on his standards, then what happens? You die. We don't know what Abraham, what Adam and Eve did prior to <clears throat> the sin in the garden, but we know that justice was on sin. They had an option, right? I mean, they, they were given everything, everything that God considered good. They knew that they were a product of a good God, that they were servants of a good God, not just a great God, but a good God, because he gave them everything. There was one limit, though, and that limit was don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat of the tree of life, but you can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the temptation to do that overcomes. And then what happens right after that, Satan, uh, not Satan, um, Eve immediately blames the serpent and said, he deceived me. Well, honestly, how did he deceive her? He said, you will not surely die. And if you gain the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like God. Well, from his perspective, he's a serpent. So he's, a, he, he's an, uh, an agent of desire, I guess is the best way to say it. That, that for a serpent, you don't, he's not, he doesn't have commandments. It's if you desire it, it must be good for you. Therefore, do it. And if you know good and evil, then that's the only thing standing between you and God. And so what's really happening is he's appealing to her desire. doesn't mean that he's trying to deceive her. He's thinking as a serpent thinks, not as a human thinks, because he's not created in the image of God. So from Eve's perspective, it was deception. God curses the serpent for his role in this mess. So there's a, there's a separation. Uh, Francis Schaeffer said there are multiple separations that occur here. And the first separation is from one another because what happens next, right, is he says, why did you eat of the tree? And Adam says, the woman who you gave me gave it to me and I ate. Well, he wasn't deceived at all. He can't even remotely say that he was deceived because he had the word of God. Now, he sees that his wife has eaten from this tree and she has not died in spite of the fact God said, you will surely die in the day that you eat of it. And so he sees that she did not eat. So he has maybe reason in his mind to question, is God a truth teller? Because she didn't die, so he eats. But then he blames her. She blames the serpent. Sounds a whole lot like human behavior all the time. But what Francis Schaeffer said is, is that, that we have this separation between us and God because of sin. We've created a separation between us, and that's a physical separation in this particular sense because what are they doing when God shows up in the garden? They're hiding. They're hiding because of their sin. So there's a separation between them and God, and they experience that not only at um, a sort of an emotional level or an intellectual level, they know that, that our relationship is irretrievably changed now, and so they hide from him in the garden. But then when Adam says, the woman you gave me, then they're distanced from one another. I've frankly never been sure how in the world, except for there's just the two of them, that that relationship even survived after that. I can't imagine that if I stood before the Lord and blamed my sin on Suzanne, I'm not sure she would ever forgive me, nor should she. But then there's also a separation from the animal kingdom. The relationship with the animals is changed now. 
because of this. And so there's God's curse is there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So there's a difference in that relationship. It changes even more after the flood when God says you can eat clean animals. So before that, we had seemingly been only vegetarian. So the, the relationship and the separations intensify over time until Jesus comes. But So there's separation between God and man. There's separation between human beings. Now there's separation between um, us and the animal kingdom. But the, what's cursed with Adam is the ground. So our relationship with God's world, God's creation is changed because now only by the sweat of your brow will you be able to do this? What was meant to be a cooperative partnership and, and, and a world of hesed, where we bless the earth, the earth blesses us, we bless one another, we bless God, God blesses us, we bless the animal kingdom by ruling over it wisely and well, is now completely changed. Our relationship between everything created in Genesis 1 and the creator of Genesis 1 changed because of sin. And we know that. We know that in our own lives. We know that our relationships with people change when we sin against them. We know that our relationships with people change when they sin against us. We know the effects of the fall. And yet we love this world so much that we cling to life no matter what. We, we, we refuse to lay down our lives. We chase after the good life, the good things in life, because of God's hesed in creating this as a beautiful and a wonderful place. And so what I want to look at over the next few minutes is sort of some uh, Old Testament uh, places where we can see God's hesed. And so certainly one is in the garden. They did not die at that moment. They will surely die. But God could have ended it all right there, right? And could have brought in two new people and done it all over again, but he didn't. But he, instead what he did was he made skins for them to wear. And there's a lot of thought on what that entails. There's a lot of really interesting rabbinic thought that I'll share with you real quickly on that. And one of those things that they say is, is that the, the rabbis posit that, that in the beginning, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed because they had no sense of being naked. What they say is, is that, that they were clothed in light. It was sort of that primordial light from the beginning of the world. But it's also the Shekinah glory of God, the glory that inhabits the tabernacle in the wilderness when Moses consecrates it. It's the glory of God that inhabits the temple when Solomon prays over the temple. And we'll get back to one other place where that's manifest first. But, but I want to tell you what happens to that glory. When sin enters the world, they say, that glory goes because now there's sin. And so that glory can't cover them. But what they said was that glory covered them like a cloak. But it, it was there for two reasons. It was to, to be God's manifest presence on the earth, but it was also as a sign to the rest of creation that these are indeed God's representatives. They, they are little gods at some level. It's the authority that they have, the symbol of their authority over the rest of creation. And so the animals would have worshipped them. And, and when God gives Adam the right to name the animals, part of that is the same idea. It's God giving him power to do that shows the rest of creation that they represent God and they have his full power and authority to do that. And that's what that 
glory that they posit represented. But it's gone when sin enters the world, and so God makes skins for them to wear. They've made fig leaves. God gives them skins. Well, skins come from animals. So something died, and as a, as a great uh, act of hesed, God gives them skins. He, he doesn't, they don't die. Something else dies. And so they have to live with the knowledge that because of their sin, something else dies, and now they're clothed in those skins rather than what they were intended to be clothed in, which was the Shekinah glory of God. So once this, the, that Shekinah glory leaves, now they're aware of their nakedness. So they go from naked and ashamed to naked. No, to, from naked and ashamed, unashamed to naked and ashamed because of sin. So they lose something, but they gain something at the same time. They, they, there's a relationship with the animals that's changed, but because they're wearing skins, they're more like animals, now, because they have animal skins, but at the same time, there's a fear and a dread that comes into that because they're clothed in the skins of an animal that died. And so everything continues to change. So let's go back to that idea, though, that idea of the Shekinah glory of God covering these people as though it were a cloak. This is 11th, 12th century uh, A.D. Judaism. Uh, and Jewish thought, by the way. So what they see is is that that's what it must have looked like, and so they had the power and authority of God on them visibly to everything else in creation. So before Jesus goes to the cross, he takes three of his disciples, James and John and Peter, and they go up on a mountain, a very high mountain, by the way. It's about 12,000 feet is how high up they are. So they're over a couple of miles up. So they go up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and what do the disciples see? Well, first, right, they see Jesus transfigured. And what does that transfiguration look like? It, mean, it looks like he's clothed in garments of light. And then they see Moses and Elijah, and Jesus is speaking with them. This transfiguration, the power of that, it, it goes back to that uh, Jewish idea of what exactly does it mean to be naked and unashamed. And it's the, the power of being clothed in garments of light. And Jesus is transfigured in the sight of the disciples, and it's sort of the opposite of Moses, when he goes and meets with God, and he comes down from the mountain, and, he, and his face is glowing. And so he hides it because it, the people are afraid, and he doesn't want them to see that glory fading because it diminishes his authority over the people. But the people are afraid to go meet with God because of that, Moses' shining face. And that's, though, like the, the glory of the moon. Right? So when, when Moses, the moon, goes and meets with God, then some of the glory from God now becomes visible on the face of Moses. And the longer he spends away from the presence of God, the more that, that glory, the shining face, fades. So he veils that. So the people are not afraid of him as they're afraid of God. And so they don't see that that glory is fading, so his authority is undiminished. With Jesus, it's exactly the opposite. What happens on the Mount of Transfiguration is Jesus removes the veil that hides his glory, the glory that of the one and only, as we say. But, but that, that veil that's there is removed in the presence of um, Elijah and Moses, and 
in the presence of those three disciples. They've seen the fullness of the glory of God in Jesus. And he says, don't tell anybody. I'm not sure that I can keep that one, Jesus. I'm not positive that I cannot tell somebody what we saw. We saw Moses and Elijah, and we saw you transfigured and the glory of God shining not on you, but through you and out of through your clothes, through the veil of, of this body and of this life. We saw that. And then we heard God say, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then Moses and Elijah were gone. There's only Jesus. And he's the only one standing there transfigured in glory. And what has he said to them more than once prior to that? The thing they don't want to hear. They don't want to listen to him say, I'm going to be crucified. The Son of Man must be offered up. They don't want to hear that. But that's the message that they have to hear now. But they, what they've done is they've seen the glory of Jesus. And now what they're told is, listen to him. His glory is greater than Moses and Elijah, the two great heroes of the Jewish faith. They've not only seen it, but they've heard it from God. The voice from heaven comes. And so th there's this incredible act of Hesed in that one then going to the cross. If you'd seen that, you'd seen that glory, the glory of the one and only, John says, that glory come down on him, come out from him. Not like the, the moon reflecting the sun like Moses, but no, this is his glory. It's coming from him. It's not being, it's not reflected glory. It's the glory of the one and only son. It's the glory of God. I and the Father are one, Jesus said. So the, to see that and then to walk the path that they walk when they come into Jerusalem and he's proclaimed as the son of David and they're shouting, Hosanna, Lord, save us. And then a week later, crucify him, shout the same people. To see him go to the cross is something you can't, unsee what they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so now they're left with that and Jesus dying on the cross, saying it is finished, praying for those who are actually demanding his crucifixion, those who have persecuted him, those who have beaten him, those who have spit on him, those who have mocked him. There's no greater hesed than that. They're saying, you saved others, save yourself. Come down from that cross no, the great act of Hesed on the cross is staying on the cross because he didn't have to. It was possible. He had the power to come down from that cross and bring din, justice, into the world forever and ever and end everything right there. But the act of Hesed in staying on that cross, not just staying there, sucking it up and dying painfully with anger in his heart. No, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That is what Hesed love looks like. The, the decision, the willful decision to love something and someone so much that you will persevere no matter what they do to you. 
you will persevere in loving them. Not with gritted teeth, but with a broken heart. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long have I yearned to gather you up? Yet you would not. You've killed the prophets. Everybody that I've ever sent to you, you've mocked, spit on, and murdered. And yet, you are still my people. The Hesed love of God is, is beyond imagining. You've never experienced that in love for another person. Because no matter how well you love, there are times when you're angry, so angry that, that you, you want to pull your hair out. Jesus prays. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Hesed love of God is the love that, that perseveres in love, not gritted teeth, all the way to it is finished. It, it begins in the garden. It's where you begin to see it. And then it continues because they didn't have to live. And then the Hesed love of God is then shown to who next? right? Cain. Who does God speak with? God speaks with Cain. He doesn't speak to Abel. He speaks to Cain. God knows what's going to happen. And he loves both of them so much that he speaks to Cain. And he loves him enough that he has the freedom to do it. God didn't intervene. There's very few people on earth. <laughs> and God doesn't intervene and allows that first murder to take place. He could have ended it there. But he didn't end it there. He could have ended Cain's life, not Abel's life. But the dignity of his own creation was so important to him that he let it happen. We can get upset when God allows evil to have its day. We can look back in time and we can see, God, why did you allow Adolf Hitler to do what he did? Why did you allow the Stalinists, the communists, to do what they did in Russia and killing millions and tens of millions of people? Why have you allowed that same thing in China? Why have you allowed, why have you allowed, why have you allowed? Why have you allowed in my life the pain of other people's sin? Very rarely do we look up and go, why do you allow the pain in other people's lives because of my sin? <clears throat> but, but this is all an act of God's love for his creation. It's not that he's distant from his creation because we know that he grieves over it and we know it because of Jesus. We know it because at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus wept. Not because it was a hopeless situation, but because of death. That moment of encountering the death and the, the grief that it brings on humankind is what moved Jesus to weep at the tomb of Lazarus. So even in the time of Noah, there's mercy. There's mercy on his own creation. There's mercy on the face of the earth because of what we had done to it. There's mercy for his creatures. There's mercy for humankind because it would have been easier. Again, he's capable of starting all over again with new raw materials. He could have started all over again with new people. But Noah was found righteous in his day. It doesn't mean that Noah had perfect righteousness. He did not. He was just righteous for his time, which probably wasn't that high a bar as it seems if God decided to wipe out all of humanity because of it. But, but he preserved that. And then what happens, as soon as they get able to establish a vineyard, Noah makes some wine, drinks some wine, gets drunk, passes out, and is 
son uncovers his nakedness. What is wrong with us? How can we have gone through such a thing as that? And then, so soon afterwards, move towards some sort of weird, perverse, uncovering the nakedness of our Father. How does God put up with this? Why does He do that? It's because of His nature. It's because of the steadfast love for that which He created. We'll talk a little bit more about this next week. We'll move through some other Old Testament passages and then we'll spend a fair bit of time thinking about what does it mean, what does it look like for us to show that Hesed love for others. Because it's got to work itself out in our character or it's not real, right? It's, the way we prove that we are creating the image of God is that our, our ability to act as God would act. And as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit to allow us to do that. It's not an act of will. It's not an act of, of gritted teeth. I've got to do this. No, it should be an overflow of our character that fails to recognize boundaries that sin erects because love tears down those boundaries, breaks through sin and the effects of sin in our lives and establishes relationship because it sets relationship as the most important thing because hesed is only possible in relationship. So we'll talk about that more next week. Thanks for being here. I'm John Green. This has been Faith Seeking Understanding.